Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about church and the therapeutic. Which is the title of a recent article at Mere Orthodoxy by Jake Meter. Some of you out there are like, gosh, you guys are like bashing on therapy again. Nope, that's not what we're doing. But we are trying to uh, carefully engage a conversation that I think is very, very important for the church. And that Jake Meter seems to keep writing about. And Okay, let's be honest. He's just paying us money to talk about his articles. <laughs> and we keep reading. We keep reading. Jake hasn't sent any snacks, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Jake, come on, man. We're giving you so much love. We we're expect gonna try, pastries. We're going to try something new. We're actually going to read this whole post out loud on Whoa. the podcast. And then live respond to it. That's what we're doing here. Um, so here we go. So it's kind of how like some pastors preach. They read a text and just kind of live commentary. That'll, it'll be like that. All right. So this article has three sections and we're each going to read a section to kick us off. Dusty White. Jake says, church one, the church's leadership distinguishes carefully between spiritual care, shepherding work, and mental health slash therapeutic care preserving space for both, but keeping them clearly separate. Parishioner is not another word for client or patient. It is made clear every week that God's answer to sin is the gospel, that through Christ we can be made new, and that there is hope for restoration and renewal in this life because of the work of Christ. When someone in the church expresses a sense of struggle or despair, the typical response is sensitive and empathetic and characterized by pointing people toward Christ and the gospel not only as a reminder that they are loved by God, but also as an encouragement that another life is possible and that God's word can free them from their struggles. In specific situations, the pastor's policy is that if a shepherding situation arises that requires more than four or five meetings to resolve, it is usually appropriate to refer it to a mental health professional or counselor. He does this both to protect his own time so that he can be available to the entire congregation and because complex problems of this sort may well involve mental illness, long-term unhealthy patterns in a marriage, addiction, past experiences of abuse, etc. And he thinks there are other resources that can help people work through these, those problems. The church also hosts a couple support groups for mental health issues, and the diaconal fund can be used to help cover the cost of counseling for parishioners who aren't able to pay for that sort of help on their own. All of the above seem quite right and good to me. Preserving the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church while also recognizing that in a certain situation, professionalized care can be beneficial. The primary thing the church is dedicated to is discipleship. Within that work, it is understood that in a certain situation, counseling, therapy, medication, etc. can be helpful tools to help people deal with particular issues. That's church one. And just hearing that, that sounds like, yeah, that's the kind of church I want to lead, right? Sounds similar to what I'm doing. Yeah, I would hope that sounds exactly like, yep, that's what we're aiming for. Now he's going to talk about church too. Mr. Chris Hummelman. The church's leadership is marked by a commendable burden for its members and desire to love them well, in particular to love those who have been in abusive churches well. In practice, this often means that they see their job as helping their congregants experience an inner sense of peace or calm as well as freedom from shame, both of which are needed in their view because of the deep sense of badness and guilt that many people from abusive churches live with. The church's liturgy is also designed to help people toward peace. Unfortunately, the result of this is that there is very little conversation about sin, 
holiness, or Christian maturation, all of which are fairly central themes in Scripture and are indeed regular topics of conversation for Jesus and the Gospels. Additionally, the topics that are discussed often seem to be approached more from a therapeutic lens than a biblical lens. So, for example, discussions about shame will draw more from Brene Brown, who has no positive role for shame in her definition than from Scripture, which has both positive and negative understandings of shame. When parishioners are struggling, the typical response is to exhort them to have grace for themselves, practice self-care, and be gentle with themselves while remembering that everyone struggles and that they aren't alone. This is done from a commendable desire to not harm, but it often has the effect of leaving people stuck and even of suggesting to parishioners that they will always be where they are now, which can actually lead to despair. Additionally, because of the formation the congregation has undergone in both the culture and in the church, it has become very difficult to deal with moral failings in the life of the church. When a pastor attempts to lovingly confront someone over behavior that is obviously sinful and is doing real harm to their loved ones, the pastor is rebuffed and told they shouldn't shame their congregants. The pastor may even be accused of either incompetence or of being abusive, which then triggers broader crises within the church. All of this is what I am saying I am trying to write against. If you haven't seen it, that's fine, but I can assure you it exists. I have received more emails and text messages from church leaders over the stuff I've written on this issue in the last month than I have anything else I have ever written at mere O ever. So it would seem that a lot of pastors are dealing with these dynamics. The difficulty is that much of this kind of vibe within local churches and pockets of denominations and church networks. So it can be hard to point to a single book, podcast, or author who fully and completely exemplifies all of this. I'm not writing these things with some kind of vendetta against a specific author or public figure. And yet I can assure you that what I am describing here is a thing that happens in many churches. I once sat through a sermon on Genesis 3 that never used the word sin, and in which virtually the entire sermon was a loosely adapted Brene Brown lecture. By the end of it, one could be forgiven for wondering if God did something wrong by shaming Adam and Eve. I also, earlier this year, heard a prominent Christian author give a talk in which the author suggested that Paul was sinning by shaming the demoniac girl in Acts 16. It is perhaps worth noting here that some of this isn't far removed from what routinely goes on in the mainline Protestant world. I also speak not infrequently with people struggling in marriage, struggling with parenting, who want actual help, both practical help and some sense of hope that they won't always have these struggles, that things can actually get better. And in too many cases, what they are hearing in church is, it's okay to not be okay. Have you tried therapy? Practice self-care, be gentle with yourself, and so on. The result is that people feel stuck and one of two things usually ends up happening. They either learn to see that struggle as being inexorably part of their identity, and so it becomes a central part of who they are, thereby exacerbating all the issues that already exist, or they give in to despair because they actually hate the struggle, they want to be free from it, and they don't think that's possible. Why Church 2 exists? To be sure, I understand why this happens. I grew up in an abusive church myself. One pastor there spent over a decade in prison for sexually assaulting young boys from the church. Another was eventually fired after decades of cheating on his wife with women from the church. On more than one occasion, significant amount, amounts of church money disappeared without any explanation or any investigation that I know of. Of the folks I grew up with, something like 85% at least are no longer Christian. 
I nearly lost my own faith due to this church. When I tried to talk to the pastor about it, he wrote back that your spiritually barren condition is entirely your own creation as it, and is in no way the fault of the church. So yeah, I've seen some things. I've been wounded by the church. And I desperately want people with stories like mine to be loved and cared for by healthy Christian churches. But when I look back on the pivotal moments in my own story, nearly all of them are interactions in which the person speaking with me was gentle and empathetic, and in which they didn't flinch from calling me toward repentance and calling me toward holiness in response to God's extravagant love for me. Certainly, that is what I found at Labrie, and it is what I found here in the Platte Valley Presbytery of the PCA. If the Christian story is true, then our ultimate measure for judging health and maturation is proximity to Jesus, and Jesus was holy and calls us to be holy. When concepts, techniques, and habits of thought creep into the church that undermine the call to holiness, then the church's ability to provide care for victims of spiritual abuse is actually being crippled, not helped. The hope of spiritual abuse victims is ultimately found in the gospel, in Christ. The Christ who saves them also calls them to a life of Christian discipline, both for their own good and the good of their neighbors. None of this categorically rules out practices of spiritual direction, which should be sharply distinguished from therapeutic care anyway, or the prudential use of therapeutic aids or medication to deal with specific struggles. Nor does it mandate that Christian counselors adopt a neuthetic approach to care. What it does require is that we say, Nein! That's German for no, by the way. To any attempts to make Christianity answerable to the therapeutic approach, or to situate Christianity within the therapeutic schema laid out by Sayers. God's word must reign. It must be the norm that norms all else. If that ever ceases to be true in our communities, then our communities will have ceased to be meaningfully Christian. That's the end of the piece. And uh, as you hear in the section that Chris read, (laughs) Jake Meter says he's received more emails and text messages from church leaders over what he's written on this in the last month than anything he's written ever. And I can... I can, I can say, true too, from my own experience, these conversations are real live in a lot of my networks yeah. of people just acknowledging there is a problem here with a shift in the church away from centering discipleship and spiritual formation and repentance and faith toward that more centering of a, you know, self-care, you know, take care of yourself, seek some help in therapy. And again, the goal of this podcast is not to say anything bad about therapy, but to say that I think what Jake is naming here clearly is hitting a nerve in what a lot of people are experiencing in various churches. Yeah, and let's just acknowledge that it's only in the last couple of years that it's very normal for everybody to have a counselor on speed dial. Hmm. It used to be a couple of years, or just a couple of years ago, it was, it was kind of like, uh, you might need counseling. Now it's just assumed that everybody needs counseling or therapy. And, um, and even really since the pandemic for us here in Omaha, uh, we used to have a, a wide range of counselors that had openings. Now nobody has openings. So there is just a, a heightened awareness of therapy in the culture as well. I want to read a question that Jake asked in a previous article that I think he's sort of vamping on as he writes this that I found helpful. He said, I want to ask a series of questions. Who needs therapy? Is there anyone that does not need therapy? Do people who need therapy ever reach a point of not needing therapy? If the claim is being made that therapy can be a helpful tool in particular situations to help people grow and mature, I see no problem there. 
What I object to is the totalizing tendency in much therapeutic rhetoric, which seems to run on the assumption that everyone needs therapy and that you never stop needing therapy. And, and I think that's when he describes church one and church two, church one is a church that says, hey, this is a helpful tool. We need, to, we need to outsource people to therapists and counselors who are trained to equip them and help them grow through certain struggles and problems and challenges and, and things in their story. That's good and right. But that, that second category of everybody always needs therapy and no one ever is beyond needing therapy, I think is there are more and more people that seem to bear that assumption or at least that can operate in the world as though that's sort of how they perceive things. And I do think that undermines the the reality that like the gospel actually does change people and people can actually experience help and change and growth mm-hmm. and transformation. Mm-hmm. I think you put your finger right on the, the wrestle that I, th- I feel like I'm, it's just welling up more and more inside of me is how this can minimize the power of the gospel. And, and again, this has played out, I think in per- a lot of personal experience and pastoral experience, I have over the past several years, regularly said, I kind of, I kind of have this intro spiel that I do before every sermon where I welcome people. Welcome. If you're, you know, confident believer looking for a church home, if you're a skeptic, if you're wrestling through, you know, just welcoming people to say, you know, we would love to be for you to be part of first city church. And I've also not necessarily every Sunday, but quite often we'll make an appeal to those who've been hurt by the church. And so in some ways, first city has opened its doors. We have, we have postured ourselves as a church that wants people who have experienced church abuse to come and experience the healing and the power of the gospel in their lives to transform them. And God has answered that prayer sometimes more so than I think we're able to handle sometimes. And then like, Lord, can you just send some people who are super mature and just ready to dive in? Uh, because we need some help here. But I think through that one, I have seen the power of a community that, that truly is to your point safe where they're, you know, Ray Ortland's uh, categories, the gospel plus safety plus time and seeing the gospel work. But what the, the big piece there is the gospel actually transforms and the people who actually make progress and experience healing and growth are those who lean into and believe the gospel actually can transform. And it's like more and more. Yeah. Some of them use therapeutic categories that go to counseling, do all the work, all of that good. But more and more, they're learning to see themselves through the lens of the gospel and using gospel categories and gospel language. And that's what's transforming them. And the more I've seen that, the more I'm like, okay, we, we have been missing. And I've even had to reflect on some of the language that I've used and the categories I've used and do some assessment of like, have I fallen into this at times trying to help these, these folks? Have we as a church? And wanting to, in many ways, return to and, up, and hold up that the gospel changes everything, right? That's why we're doing what we're doing. Like if the gospel doesn't change things, if Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting again doesn't change things, then all we do have is the therapeutic. And as good common grace categories as that is, as good as that can do, it's it's also limited in power. And and I think, you know, this point here, gosh, if we lose the gospel and the power of the gospel, then we aren't Christian. We're wasting our time. I haven't you know, interacted with this article much longer than the last 10 minutes. But it's interesting uh, when he's talking about church too, and and what resonates for me here is when he's talking about if this becomes a part of our identity, if we're always going to therapy, then it becomes a part of my identity. And then that's, that feels like despair. 
And to your point, Chris, the gospel always has hope. The Christian message always has hope. No matter how dark my day is, I'm, my gospel says there's hope in here mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. And so what's interesting about that, and to Jake's point here in this, in this particular article, is if I can't be free from this struggle, and if therapy needs to become pretty normal for me, then that can become a little hopeless um, and despairing, I suppose. So I think it's important for us to realize there might be times where I need counseling. Um, I remember, man, 20 years ago when JC and I were in California and we were coming back to the Midwest, we went to a three-day intensive counseling. And I would say that was super helpful for us. It was only three days. It was nine to five for three days. But, man, that really helped us. It put us on a trajectory. So there might be some times where we need that. Um, but we, I definitely don't want to set anybody up for therapy forever. You know, well, and is it a tool or is it a life? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, yeah, yeah kind yeah, of like, yeah. kind of the question the article is asking is, is this a helpful tool or is it a, a way of living and seeing reality? And um, to your point, Chris, I think Jesus calls us to a way. I think the gospel directs us on a way. Yeah. Along that way, because that way is a way of life and healing, there are ways where I, I will need tools offered by Christians who have wisdom in areas like trauma or like working through my childhood story sure, or dealing with death and grief or dealing with addiction, right? Like th- those, those tools are all important tools on that journey, but the way the journey itself is a journey toward Christ-likeness. And what I like that Jake is putting his finger on in this article is to say, listen, the, the hope is Christ. The path is a path toward Christ-likeness and toward the life that Jesus calls us to live. That needs to remain the path. And the, the tools of spiritual formation and you know community and healthy counseling and those things are, are things along that path that helped me to grow up into Christian maturity. And if we ever lose the vision of maturity, I think that's what he's saying is there, there's a vision of maturity. There's a vision of healing and hope and wholeness. And if we ever lose the vision of wholeness so that all I can ever hope to be is just a broken fragmented person, it is hopeless because I'm, I'm, I'm not anymore leaning into, man, I'm, I'm aiming at wholeness. Now I'm, I might always be on the journey there and never fully there, but the vision of a, of a, a sort of a thriving kind of, personal and spiritual and, and life wholeness that Jesus brings us into is a compelling vision. And I think it does, um, it does lead me into a kind of hope that sometimes I can be lacking if the story is just, well, go get more help because you're, you mm-hmm. know, cause you, you can't ever overcome your struggles or your past or your problems or your addictions or your brokenness, you know? Um, I have noticed too, Chris, in my language, I've tried to emphasize the reality of brokenness as a category of the fall. But sometimes I talk so much about brokenness that I, I cast a smaller vision than I should for wholeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as we preached through James recently, Doug Moo's whole category for what James is after is he just uses the category of spiritual wholeness. He says James is after wholeness. Yeah. And, you know, when he talks about being double-minded and, you know, unstable, what he's saying is here, <laughs> this is not wholeness. And so the scriptures are calling us to this vision of spiritual wholeness. Um, and, and that's, as a church, I think we want to be a church that's directing people on that path. 
and using all the resources at our disposal to keep them on that journey. It's not uncommon for me to encounter somebody who has been to a lot of therapy um, and then they they come to me because they uh, have moved to our city and they're going to our church now and so they want to get connected to a counselor. And one of, the, one of the motivations to get connected to a counselor is just because they've had a counselor and they feel like they're going to need another one. Um, but often they've been to multiple counselors and it's because certain counselors can get you so far and then they, you know, then they get stuck or they stall out or, you know, something like that. And so they just, you know, now you need to switch counselors is what the, the conclusion becomes. I always try to actually stop there and go, well, maybe you don't need counseling. Maybe you just need to be a part of a church that has community as a pretty high importance and distinctive and you might need counseling eventually, but it, it, you also just might need to be in community and be along the sanctification process with the rest of us that God is transforming. So I always want pastorally to be encouraging Christians to be thinking about that. Like we might not always need a counselor. Sometimes we will, but not all the time. And so uh, hopefully in our churches, we can redeem a little bit of not because I'm opposed to the therapeutic world. This is what I do every day. Like I, <laughs> this is, by the way, reality. It's like all I do is try to network with counselors and try to get people to the right kinds of counseling and when they need it. Um, but I do, I do not want to lose just the art of pastoring, shepherding, communal help that is already built into the body of Christ because the scriptures have already given it to us. Well, and I was going to say, and and the priesthood of all believers. Yeah, that. Yeah. Because what I think you do well, Dusty, is you generally, as I've seen you pastor people, try to help them direct, you try to direct them back to community, right? Of like, hey, the place where your your healing is actually going to be lived out is going to be in community. And I was just interacting with a friend at my gospel community last week who had been seen a therapist last year for some really severe depression. And I just said, hey, it was about this time last year that you were doing some pretty intensive counseling. How are you feeling right now? And this person was like, I feel great. Like I, I feel like I'm in a whole different place than I was last year. And I was like, that's so encouraging. Yeah. But, Amen. but if there, what I realized in that moment is like, I think that's a, that's a, a conversation that should be happening in a real normal Christian community. Mm-hmm. But the problem is mm-hmm. in some churches, those conversations never happen. Right. It's just like, no one, no one's caring about you in that way. And so, and so you feel kind of alone, but if you're in a community where the people around you are checking in and there actually is that, that spur and that longing of like, Hey, let's, let's walk forward together into some kind of wholeness. That's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. And so the, the tendency that a highly therapeutic culture has to place the hope in a professional, whether that's a professional counselor or a professional pastor or a professional mentor or, you know, whatever. I always want to work against that and say, Hey, God has gifted unique people to do unique things, but the tools you need to grow up to Christian maturity are right around you in the body of Christ. You don't merely need to look for the guru, the sage, the person who has all the answers. You may need someone who has some specialization and some help, but really what you need is just to be in community with some human beings who are trying to grow toward Jesus together. Another part of this article that I think is worth highlighting, and I don't know if we've done a podcast just on this topic, but he makes a really good point about the use of shame and how our definition of shame 
has been detached from a biblical definition mm, of shame. Yeah. And th- this is another one of those things that you learn from experience because I've, I've been one who's used this category of shame a lot. And I think it, it has been helpful for some folks to, to introduce this into their vocabulary. But I've also found exactly what he describes where now because shame has become the thing that the worst thing in the world for me to happen to happen to me is for me to experience shame as if it is always a bad thing. And I think a couple of things worth noting one, as he points out the biblical definition of shame, but I also think this is tied to the somewhat to the context and historical definition of shame, because the Bible was written in culture, both old Testament, new testaments of cultures that had a high honor shame sort of system. But it wasn't the sort of interior, individualistic, um, modern version of shame. It was more like social shame. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was rooted in a a moral ethic of the community. And you had violated that. You brought dishonor to the community based on a moral code, behavioral code. So it was grounded in some objective truth rather than my own interior experience. Mm. And I think there there was uh, at a time people trying to raise this category of shame, grounding it in scripture, saying, hey, scripture actually has this kind of category as a way to push against some of the individualism of of our modern perception of self. But we uncritically sort of adopted the same definition, sort of the modern definition of shame, which is not the same as the biblical or you know past generations definition. So I, I just want to raise that for our listeners to say, hey, shame is a good category to be operating with, but fill that out biblically and wisely, not necessarily through the lens of the therapeutic that that our culture uses. Take that just a step further for me. So just in assuming here that maybe I can't frame it all out biblically, would you give me like a a quick like reference and then how I would see healthy shame? So I think one of the, the ways we, so guilt is I, I have done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong, right? There, there's something about core identity. And there is a sense in which the gospel does declare, I have sinned against God. My guilt is also my shame. I am in the wrong. I am inherently a sinner apart from the grace of God, apart from union with Christ. My standing before God is guilty, shameful sinner. So there is a, a, a reality where we have to acknowledge the biblical definition of shame does pronounce something very negative and worth judgment on us. Now, what does the gospel do? It saves us from the guilt, but it also transforms my identity. Now I'm a beloved adopted son. I'm not this shameful sinner who is wrong. I have the righteousness of Christ. And so that's where the beauty of the gospel yeah. transforms my identity. Right. But but we also have to recognize that the, the correct form of shame actually speaks to the depth of my sin and the nature of my sin. Oh, I didn't just mess up oh, I didn't just do this bad thing this one time. No, it actually goes to the core of who I am. I am a sinner apart from Christ. So I think that's where filling that out, but also opens the door for the beauty and the power of the gospel. Yeah. Let me, let me try to name something that you said, I think, that I, that describes what I think I'm trying to do in these last few podcasts and really m- many of the podcasts we've done in the last six months. You said that the mistake we've made with shame is to adopt it uncritically and sort of pull it into our way of talking about things without first filtering it through how does the Bible view this category? And 
I think that's what I'm trying to say or what I think we're trying to surface with with regard to narcissism, with regard to therapeutic culture, with regard to categories like shame, is just to say um, we as Christians have a responsibility not merely to adopt the language of our culture, but also to 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 critique our culture using the language of the Bible. And sometimes I think the mistake that we make is to say, oh, gosh, Brene Brown is talking about a lot of helpful stuff about shame. Let's incorporate that into how we think. And that's and there are really good things about that, right? But when we uncritically adopt that and only talk about shame as a negative thing, instead of saying, actually, shame is part of our moral fabric as human beings. We're designed to feel shame and shame is good because if we didn't feel shame, we wouldn't run to the cross. Now we've we've only adopted, but we haven't sort of critiqued yeah. before we have put that to work. And I, I think if you want to sort of hear, if you want to have a sort of set of ears for what we're trying to do in these podcasts, it is just to say, anytime we're taking a tool that the culture hands us and using it as sort of like a new way of thinking or understanding without first also critiquing it according to scripture and sort of reshaping it and saying, how does the Bible make us rethink about this category. I, I think we're, we're making, we're moving too quickly Yeah, and we, we have to slow down and say, okay, these tools are good. How would the Bible make us think more carefully and in a more nuanced way about this tool that our yep. culture has handed us so that now we can use it not only to, um, to serve people, but also to critique the very worldview that lies underneath. Yeah. And you know, who is a master doing this that we can all learn from? Herman Bobbing. Yes. There it is. And that gets us to third Wednesday. Th- oh, that's two weeks from now. There you go. Third Wednesday theology. Well, happy post Thanksgiving holidays, everybody. And uh, we'll see you again next week as we tackle another topic. And as we uh, lean into the uh, Advent and holiday season. Is it going to be Jake Meter? Do you think we're going <laughs> to? If Jake keeps writing good stuff, I'm yeah. sure we'll keep talking about it. Pretty soon we'll change it to the Jake Meter conversation. That's right. Amen. Well, thanks for writing a few good things, Jake. We like it. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.